Well, g'day and welcome to On Liberty Extra, a one-off extra episode hosted by me, Jacinta Numbyanba-Price. And today we have Warren Mundine, Chairman and Managing Director of Nungai Black Group, political strategist and author of recent CIS paper, It's the Economy, Stupid. Economic participation is the only way to close the gap. Warren, how are you? I'm great, you know, just everything's pretty busy at the moment, a busy week, and it's always good to be busy because that means you pay the bills. <laughs> and paying bills is quite an important um, issue we're all being faced with at the moment, but um, yeah. it's certainly something that we want to be able to uh, see more Indigenous people participating in <laughs> across the yeah. nation. So one of the opening points you make with regard to your paper is that conditions must exist in communities that are necessary for private enterprise and commerce to thrive. You also go on to mention that the economic status of Indigenous Australians is not in fact addressed in the current Closing the Gap targets. So can you tell us a little bit about what this means for Indigenous Australians and certainly with regard to Closing the Gap? Well, what's been happening in the last, say, 20 years has been this shift in thinking uh, that, uh, you know, working for community organisations, working from, through government agencies and this top-down approach uh, hasn't been working. In fact, over 50 years of this, this policy area, there's been very little shift in the, uh, the prosperity of uh, Indigenous people in Australia. And so... Uh, they said, well, what's the missing element? And, of course, the missing element uh, is economic development. There's no race or group of people in the history of humankind that's uh, actually lifted out of poverty, been able to get jobs, been able to have run businesses, to be able to get their kids educated and, and health services operating and that without having uh, an economy, without having a, a economic growth. It's... it's it's not rocket science, it's just a fact of life. So that's when they made the shift in 2004 under the Howard government of looking at this area of saying, okay, we need to start focusing not just service providers, but actually how do we create the environment for investment? And so uh, it's only through that private sector of actually having businesses that are profitable and commercial that create the jobs. Yeah, certainly, and that was one of my concerns, I know, uh, when there was mention of the fact that uh, that through the Closing the Gap that they would tackle welfare, in, uh, welfare dependency through uh, employment, through Aboriginal peak organisations, whereas, of course, I've, I've argued that that would only shift welfare to um, welfare being part of the bureaucracy as opposed to down to individuals themselves. So, um, yeah, important point to be able to support Indigenous enterprise uh, and private businesses, particularly in, in a lot of the remote areas where there is, where it's lacking. So another one of your concerns was around some of the draft targets being set as standalone targets. Um, that don't necessarily aim to reach parity with non-Indigenous Australia. 
as standalone targets, even if MET don't indicate how close we are to reaching parity. Can you elaborate further on this point? Well, the, the, the big issue is that uh, there's a couple of things there. When you're looking at governments and you're looking at community organisations, they only employ a certain amount of people. Then it's, it is the private sector that employs the most people, especially in rural and remote areas. Something like 70 to 80 percent, depending on the region, is employed in small business. That, that 20 to 30 percent are actually employed by governments. And that's where you've got this, this large unemployment pool that's happening out there. When you look at those, at the priority areas, it is all about bureaucracy. And we've been doing that since about 1970. So that's 50 years and it hasn't worked. And we wonder why you get these incredible unemployment levels in that. Uh, prior to the 1970s, most Aboriginals worked. It may surprise some people, but they did work. You know, they worked in the cattle industry, they worked as shearers, they worked as fruit pickers, they worked in a wide range of jobs. And it cha all changed with the equal pay thing. Now, and I'm saying we shouldn't get equal pay. And all of a sudden, we were out of work and, and the welfare system was able to access the welfare system. So we've had 50 years of, of unemployment in some of these communities. And the only way to do that is to change it around and start showing opportunities for people. In fact, Canada and other uh, Indigenous groups around the world were looking at us because of the major change we started making it from 2004 because we've set up so many incredible programs that started to make that shift. Now, a good example of that is the mining industry. Now, we've had over 6,000 Aboriginals go into the mining industry, more than 6,000 of that. Just about 1,500 of those are women and they're in all sectors of the industry from engineering, truck driving, uh, tradies, office workers, etc. And, and and that had a major uh, a growth factor in, in, in economic uh, outcomes for Indigenous people. Then you look at uh, look at the other areas where now we've brought in that policy of the procure, Indigenous procurement policy. That in within five years has now gone from $6.7 million program to $2 billion. Two billion, and that cost the government not one cent because mm. they were contracts that were going to go out anyway. So, so when these Indigenous businesses could meet the merit of those contracts, they got them. And so it didn't cost anything. The problem with, the, with, with this community bureaucracy approach, it costs the taxpayers money. And we've seen that recently with the, with you know the fifty million dollars that just only went out last week, and we saw that the previous hundred million dollars that went out. These are all taxpayers' money. What is happening in the business sector is that they're not spending taxpayers' money; they're actually becoming taxpayers and contributing to the tax system, which builds the medical service and builds the legal and so on. Yeah, absolutely, and. On that point about the equal pay decision, uh, there's, and, and which sort of goes hand in hand with, um, you know, welfare dependency, which has helped contribute to high levels of incarceration. A lot of uh, Australians seem to, you know, think that it, a lot of Australians have been told, and particularly by, um, you know, the left and by protesters that. Indigenous Australians have been incarcerated at high rates since ever since colonisation. Uh, but of course, as you mentioned, 
Indigenous Australians were largely becoming part of the economy, one thing that I, I came to understand was that incarceration rates dropped dramatically around 1915 and, and Indigenous Australians became part of the economy, right. took on jobs and that sort of thing. And then, of course, you know, there's always well-intentioned well -intentioned policy like the equal pay decision, which, you know, of course we want equal pay, but it meant a lot of Indigenous Australians then um, lost their em employment opportunities and, of course, that coupled with welfare has been one of the largest contributors to the high rates of incarceration. But I'll get to incarceration and uh, get you to talk about a bit about those targets um, a little bit after. But firstly, um, an issue that I've always tried to highlight is the differences between cities and very remote areas, uh, communities. And as you've addressed, you argue that separate targets should be adopted, otherwise you run the risk of ignoring the gap between remote Indigenous communities and urban communities in identifying successes or failures in school attendance and employment. So how do you propose the government should proceed with these targets going forward? Well, they do have to take an original approach because they're, like you go to some rural communities and, and, and they're, they're, the opportunities there, there are opportunities, but it, it, there's low economic opportunities there. And so, like like in Sydney, the Aboriginal people living in Sydney, they're living in Australia's largest city, they're living in Australia's largest economy. And so, therefore, it's easier for them to access jobs, access education, access health and other heaps of programs compared to, say, someone who's living in central uh, Arnhem Land or central Australia because, because they don't have those economies of scale that... that uh, Sydney and Melbourne and Brisbane and Perth and that have, and da even Darwin. So, so we have to t uh, take its horses for courses. So we have to look at that from a regional approach. And this is one of the problems with the previous targets that we identified was that when you have this aggregate um, figure, then what what it, it gets it gets put it, it, it you don't actually get a full pic picture because it's Sydney and Perth you may have better outcomes than you have in remote communities. But when you look at, when you combine those two figures and you and you aggregate them, then it looks like things are getting better mm -hmm. and from that level and also approach it from what is the economies in those areas. So in Sydney, that you could, you could be in the building industry, you could be in uh, the legal industry, the medical industry. So in a remote community, the opportunities here are, are agriculture, uh, uh, the mining, so it's a different approach, and we've got to approach it from that different from those different areas. If we don't do that, we don't uh, really hit the right target and the right focus. Yeah, and that's certainly something that I've come come to understand. I think particularly also when it comes to um, measuring. Um, the number of Indigenous Australians who have graduated from university, for example, I think the numbers are, are wonderful to see coming through. But, I mean, I'd personally like to see um, the measurement of those who have who have come from remote communities whose perhaps uh, first language is not English uh, yeah. and, and look at the figures around those numbers that have had the opportunity to, to even complete um, high school as well uh, as go on to university. Um, I just want to say to everybody else out there, thanks for joining us today on, on Liberty Extra. 
um, join the conversation by posting your question in the YouTube chat or Facebook comments section because after I've finished asking Warren uh, some questions, I'll then throw to the audience to participate uh, as well. So when it comes to education, uh, you've laboured the point about the importance of school attendance, that 90% of attendance is required really for any child to receive an education for job uh, readiness as an adult. Yet the current draft uh, would abolish the existing target to close the gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians for school attendance. Do you think this is setting our kids up to fail? Uh, look, it, it's a nonsense approach. If, if you don't get kids to school, then you don't get kids educated. It, it's not rocket science to work that out. Even if it's a bad school, it's better than no school. So I just I just find that mind-boggling that a, a, gr a group of people can sit around in a room and say, oh, school attendance don't matter. They're also dropping the NAPLAN scores and a few other things as well. So how do we measure things? If you can't, you know, one thing we learn in business, and, and I'm a businessman, is that if you can't measure it, it doesn't happen. Because if, because if we've got 100 kids in a community and 50 kids turn up on Monday for school, and 50 kids turn up for Tuesday for school, are they the same kids? Mm. There could be 50 other kids from that community. We don't know. Or it could be 25 of them or whatever. So if we don't get those individual figures from each of those regions and regionalise them, we will not know where we need to spend the time, the resources and money. Mm. We can say, okay, this is where we've got to spend the, the money because uh, people do need to learn English because they want to, that's the way that that's the global language now I go to China I go to wherever that's the business and global language know that from globally and you know talk, looking at indigenous groups across the world as well as well as the wider communities across the world that education is the key and in the 21st century it is the key and we need to have those kids in those schools learning, and, 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 and learning their languages, learning English, learning the sciences and the mathematics and, and so on. Uh, and we, because they're the key subjects that, that the kids of the 21st century need. And so we need to do that. And if we are going to, and people talk about self-determination, that if you don't have an education and you do not, do not have an economic uh, program in business and, and jobs, then you're not self-determining at all. All you're doing is living off the government and the government is still your boss. And this is the problem we have at the moment. Everyone talks about, okay, we need to have local uh, indigenous control and that, but what they're really doing is, it, it, through this new policy stream, is setting it up so the government at the federal level and, the, and each of the territory and state governments are getting more control through their bureaucracies and the people who are running those community organisations dance the tune of the government because that's where their money comes from. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so the cycle continues. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and, and data collection was something that I, I was going to bring up with you, but you've, um, you've answered those questions. And, of course, it's important and not just uh, in terms of education, but across the board, and which is usually a state and, and territory um, responsibility. 
Um, I, I guess how can we, how can the federal government ensure that the states and territories are upholding their end of the bargain in terms of data collection? Because I know that not only does it um, is it important in terms of education for Indigenous um, children, but I know it's an important issue when it comes to attempting to address the the family violence um, epidemic as well. I mean, I don't know. Should it be a federal responsibility? Because uh, sometimes it's 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 um, it's difficult to uh, attempt to get um, states and territories to try to enforce, uh, well, bring forward the data effectively. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I don't know how state and territories operate, to be honest, in regard to because they need that data as well. If they're going to be targeting schools and kids and even even adults, and we know uh, globally from research over the last hundred years that if you have parents who are educated, they don't have to be university graduates or science professors. Just you know, education, uh, a, a sufficient education to, to work. It, we know that if that gets the parents out there, that gets some jobs. Kids actually then see them being able to read the papers, being able to, to, to do their job and go to work, then they see that as normal. And then they see the link between education and jobs and education of, oh, I can buy a house, I can buy a car, I can go on holidays, I can do this, I can do that, and I can help my own kids. Uh, then when I get married and have kids, uh, uh, help them uh, do the same thing. And, and you see it with a number of uh, Aboriginal families you, it, that through that generational thing to one or two, three generations, they've made massive changes to their, to their, their, their uh, education, to mm. their wealth. And I'm not talking about being filthy rich or anything, just the, this, the, this the thing about being able to buy a home mm. and be able to to go on a holiday, even if it's just to buy a car and, and to put a caravan on the back and go down the beach, mm. that, not, not necessarily flying off to Europe or Asia or something. That is, that's what they, uh, that all comes about through that, through that data stuff. So I, so, uh, so I think that because uh, we need to make the states and territories more accountable for this area, uh, because everyone sort of looks, when Indigenous Affairs all look to the federal government. Yeah. In actual fact, last time I looked at the constitution of the states and uh, territories and the, and the federal government, Aboriginals living in their in their constituency are citizens, and we have the same rights as all other citizens. So we have the rights to, to the public schools, we have the rights uh, to go to uh, uh, those Catholic schools, the poor in Catholic schools, which are supported by the by the government. Uh, if you want to, you know, work hard and do things, and you get a bit of extra money in scholarships, you can go to the high end schools. But we have those rights for that, and we have those rights in regard to accessing the health departments, hospitals, and health centres, and that, which the state governments fund, because that's still that we're citizens. We we are, we have that right to do that. But I always found it. Over the years, I found it funny that when something had to be done in a in a community, say, look, I'll give you an example, Walga. Uh, this is back in the 1980s. They, it was floodplain area, so they decided to build, the, you know, the, the, the flood wall around the town. And it was quite funny that when it came to the Aboriginal section of the town, the wall bypassed it. Mm. 
And I said, what happened there? And they said, oh, because the federal government wasn't going to fund the wall, we, uh, and Aboriginal people are under federal government jurisdiction. I said, aren't they under the, the Walgut Shire Council jurisdiction? Aren't mm-hmm. they citizens of Walgut Shire? Aren't mm-hmm. they citizens of, of New South Wales? And they should be getting the same services. So a lot of people will buck pass into the feds. Mm-hmm. And and I, I, th- I think this, we need to make state and territory governments more accountable because under the constitution, they are in charge of health, education, roads, all this infrastructure stuff, land management and that. So we've got to make sure that they, they are actually doing the right thing by Aboriginal people and not just buck passing. Mm. Absolutely. And, you know, the one thing that I, you know, you, you don't often see in remote communities like other regular Australian communities is, um, you know, it's like a, the local butcher or the local bakery or, you know, the mechanic and, and those sorts of um, small businesses. And that's something that I've mentioned previously in, in how it can be very difficult in a lot of the remote um, communities in the Northern Territory for um, you know, traditional owners who want to go into a partnership with private enterprise to set up um, businesses, and uh, what is often stopping them is the is the process, which is you know applying for a Section 19 lease through um, the large land council bureaucracies to gain access to their own land effectively to be able to establish businesses. So, and, and one thing that I you know I've sort of that that's an issue that I've brought up and you yourself have mentioned um, you know the, the need to address this and to review um, you know things like land rights yeah well look the, 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 we always in a, in a wider Australian community we always talk about regulations as strangling businesses strangling opportunities to do things and I always say you know how, how many sets of legislation do you need to save a tree you've got local government, you've got then you've got state government, then you've got federal government, then you have to have ministerial approval and all this type of stuff. I say, look, just simplify, get make it a simplified process and where we can get a yes or no very easy. Now the problem, and you've raised a very important issue in regard to the land councils, you know, uh, where it that it takes almost forever to to get any approvals. And I look at some people uh, in some of these clan leaders up in Yungle country and other places, Walperina, who were trying to get housing ownership, and it just wasn't never going to happen. You know, even if you were a you know a Harvard law professor, you'd have problems trying to get through the the maze of legislation, and let alone just being an ordinary Australian, you know, or or a, you know a, a traditional owner from out out the back of Yundamu uh, uh, or something. You know, it just is mm. impossible to get through some of this, but. And I remember having arguments with people and said, well, in the last 10 years, no one's ever asked us about wanting to get a house. I said, no wonder they haven't asked you because it would take them forever in the debate. They, they, they're not stupid. They sat there and they went, we saw my grandfather and my grandmother and my parents try to do it and we saw the problems they had. So why should we go through all that crap? And yeah. so we got to really uh, get to a position of, streamlining those processes so it happens quickly mm. you get through that process very quickly and it's a yes and a no but what we got we got into now is a bureaucratic nightmare it, it's just incredibly crazy stuff now if we're talking about self-determination and 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 
traditional ownership being the the the, the focus, then why do, aren't they the final arbiter of what happens in their community? Mm-hmm. You know, I've been in a, like yourself. You know, you you come from a traditional community. You come from that area. I've been across Australia into some of these communities. They know what they want. Yes. They know what all they need is a little bit of help about getting there. But the way we've got the whole thing set up, it's just a nightmare for anyone. You know, I don't care how, you know, as I said, I don't care how educated you are. You could be a Harvard Law professor. You, you would actually find it almost impossible to get through that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yes, the struggle is real. Um, so I'm just going to go to a couple of um, questions here now from the audience. So Stephen Henderson what do you guys think of Aboriginal kids getting an education in the big cities? Uh, well, I, I think it's, I, I don't have a problem at all. In fact, I, I'm, I chair the Australian Indigenous Education Foundation and what we do is give opportunities for kids to go to, to, go to uh, some of you know, the GPS schools, for instance, like Joey's and, and Scott's and... and, uh, and the other ones as well, my mind just went blank there for a second, a Riverview and so on, and, and St. Catherine's and that. And and it's and these schools really work hard in regard to the education of these kids. In fact, I've, I've seen kids coming out of traditional communities, going to these schools and really being successful and, and, and moving ahead because it's about building a climate of, of normality. It's normal to study. It's mm. normal to go to class. It's normal to, 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 to have this discipline about how you do your work and how you do your schoolwork and, and, and mix and mingle. And it, and it opens up their networks. Uh, my friend, my boys went to, um, uh, to Joey's and they got mates because you've got kids coming from all around the world going to those schools. They got mates in, in, in Philippines. They talk to them and they can go and have holidays with them and they can do business with them. And they, get, and they got mates in Hong Kong. They got mates in, in Southeast Asia and so on and that as well as around Australia. And I tell you what, it is so important to give kids the opportunity. Now, some people say, oh, you're taking these kids out of these communities and, and you're making them white. No, we're not. For every every one of those kids has come because they volunteered. Mm. Not anyone, there's no one forced to come. So what it is, the parents and the kids want to come. And for every place that I know that's that's vac- that's a vacant, is how you say you will get a hundred people wanting to fill that vacancy. Mm, that's right. That notion that you know you'll be white if you get an education is utterly ridiculous and is unhelpful and oppressive, I believe. And some of the most successful people that I've seen um, from remote communities have been those who are you know. There's a young woman up in Manangrida who I met who's around my age who said. When she was when she was six, she said her mum, uh, her young mother, her parents decided they were going to send her down to Adelaide for boarding school. And she went from the age of six. She said, "I was a proper little bush kid. I didn't speak any English. I was forced to learn English at that age." And she's now uh, one of the managers of of the local council up there, and she's doing a wonderful job. And that's all um, a lot of these parents want to see. So it's ridiculous that notion that. Um, Somehow you're abandoning your, you know, your culture or anything like that. If, if, if not, you're supporting it even further, and particularly those in the community. So another question here from Steve. Just before that, we go on, just before we go on. Yes. I just find it bizarre that these people who are saying these things 
a professors at university. Mm. You could not get more white than being a professor at a university. Can't get any much more privileged. They're telling us. They're telling us that I I got educated. I'm a professor, but we don't want other people to go through this. Mm. It's total nonsense. It's we you know when you look at this, this is the world. We, we have Asians doing this. We have Africans doing this. Europeans, South American, North Americans, Pacific Islanders, and Aboriginal people. And it's the parents who are pushing this agenda. The parents and their kids want to be here. And so who's to say that they should stop them? Exactly. I mean, we, we support migrant families to do exactly that, um, to get an education so they can excel living here in Australia. So, it you know, it should be the same expectations for Indigenous Australians. So another question I have here is regarding the voice in Parliament, if it moves forward, won't it effectively be another political power play and given it will be more than likely be populated by the left? Um, I, I, I agree with that. Um, I'll, I'll let Take you that one off. <laughs> <laughs> no, look, I do have a concern. What, what, you know, and I just find some of this stuff bizarre at a time that we've had so many... Uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander representation in parliaments at local government and areas and within the within the, the power structures within business, uh, people are saying, "Oh, it's 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 uh, you know, it's racism and that's uh, holding us back." It's 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 all it's the it's the system that's holding us back. Uh, so we need to have a voice to parliament. And I said, "Go, I got a voice to parliament. If my I vote for my local member." Now, whether, he, uh, whether I voted for them particularly or I voted for another political party, they're still my local member. And I have a right to go in their office and say to them, this is what I have concerns about and this is what I want you as my local member to do. And it, this is what democracy is. Democracy is that that local member ha needs to look after his constituents and Aboriginal people are um, large part, especially in rural and remote Australia, a large part of those constituents. Mm. Well, absolutely. And I don't, I mean, I'm, I'm completely with you on that point. And I think we've got, um, we've got enough representation in terms of, uh, you know, the population of Indigenous Australians in comparison to who's sitting in Parliament. I don't necessarily think some of those, some of those Indigenous <laughs> members are representing all of us Indigenous people. But um, I don't care black, white, or brindle, half of them I wouldn't feed. But, but that's beside the point. This is democracy. We, we, we really, and, and we need that. And, and when you look around the world, where you have countries that did have divisions of their nation on race mm. or on religion, you know, you get Catholics and Protestants and Muslims and that, it's always been a disaster. Mm. You, you've got to have, you know, why can't white people... And we've seen it happen. They vote for an Aboriginal person or an Aboriginal person vote for a white person because why? Because they do the job that we want. Yes, exactly. And then I'm quite happy for any kind of individual to represent me. Chinese, a background, whatever. <laughs> That's right. Okay, I've got a question here from Salvatore Bones, CIS colleague. What, if anything, can governments do to help individuals start business? First of all, there's a couple of things, education. <laughs> why, why can't we have in the education system people learning 
our people, every person, black, white, or green, I don't care, because uh, it, it, learning about commerce, learning about your own setting up a business, learning about how you can run a business and that. Now, I know uh, a lot of people after that will, are more happy, you know, 90, over 90% of people wanted just a job and work their way up in a career path, but we do need those people to become entrepreneurs out there and to be, run their own businesses. And it doesn't matter whether it's, uh, you know, the local hamburger shop or, or, or it's, a, it's a local tradie or whatever. They're the people who create the jobs. They're the ones who create, especially in rural and remote Australia, they're the, they're, as I said, 70 to something percent of employment is through those small businesses. and that. So they're the ones we've got. And so people can learn about that. So that's, first of all, needs to be part of the education system. You don't have a negative thing. I'm sick of people saying, oh, just because you're black, you're not going to, uh, or you're Aboriginal or whatever, you're not going to, uh, that you're oppressed and therefore you're not going, no matter what you do in your life, you're always going to be oppressed. Now, I say to those kids, you can do anything. Why don't you look at this? Why don't you look at learning about how do you run a, a business? How do you do, how do you do your bookkeeping? How do you do all this other stuff? How do you do your procurement, your supply chain? How do you get out there and market your business? Why can't? That should be all part of their, their, their education. Uh, and so that, that's the start. The other part of that is working with adults. Now, how, so I think we need to keep it simple. Like, for instance, when you're working, looking at those working for the Dole programs, what, when they're mowing lawns, why can't one of those people we can train on actually run that as a business? Mm. You know, I, I look around a lot of areas, country towns and cities and other places. How many people do you see doing lawn mowing businesses? And landscaping, mm. it's a business and they're making money and they're feeding their families, they're feeding themselves, they're going on holidays and they're buying homes. That's that's the other one. Why can't we just start targeting that area and supporting those individuals and making that happen? Mm. Yeah. And I'll give an example why I'm not happy about community organisations running them because they're not commercial. If you're going to run a business, it has to be commercial, it has to make money, and profit should not be a dirty word because if you're not making money, then you're not in business and you're not employing people. So we should be promoting that as a good thing and saying, okay, and I'll give you an example in Dubbo. When I was uh, on the council in Dubbo, we, there was this garbage wheelie bin business. This boat was running, uh, at, which was washing the bins after they were clean, after they'd been empty. And he, he was getting paid something like $5 a bin. And he was earning $100,000 a year just washing bins. I was sitting there thinking, gee, I'm in the wrong job. <laughs> and he's earning $100,000 a year. The local uh, CDP program brought that, which is the community-based program, and they put this young bloke in charge of it. And he was really keen about this, and he was doing it and doing it, and he actually picked up more, more people's houses because he's doing such a good job. So him and his wife, uh, they're only young, 20 21, 22, which I'm my age when I say that's young. And they said, and they said, oh, we'd like to own the business. And the CDP said, no, you can't own it. This was a community-based business. So he said, okay, fine. And he left and he went off and did his own thing and he did quite well. Him and his wife did quite well. Mm. So, but, so what happened to that business? They put this other person in charge of the business and they, they it was because they had to work for the doll because they weren't really keen on this, doing this thing. Within six months, the business went bankrupt. Mm -hmm. uh, I, you've got to have people, and this is what business is about, you've got to have people who are keen, who are hungry, who want to make a success, and that's what we've got to build. Mm.
Yes, absolutely, and take those opportunities. And I think, uh, yeah, that's the best way to go. If it's not working for them, if they've suddenly they suddenly realised, they should have gave them the business. Yeah, they and, should. And that, and they would have made it successful, and there would have been a really good Aboriginal business working in that town. Mm, yeah. <laughs> okay, another question um, by Peter Ballin. A major global demographic trend is the movement of peoples from regions to cities for all the reasons Mr Mundine has given, e.g. jobs and education. Why should move to the cities not be encouraged? Uh, look, you don't have to encourage <laughs> because it's happening. It's been happening almost since the late 70s, early 80s the movement of population to the city. And you, you see that on a global stage. I think last year was the first time that more people lived in cities in the world than lived in rural and areas. Uh, so that, that, that's a continuation of that. But what we've got to do in Australia is take look, look at other countries. When you look at America, you've got to go through 100 cities before you get the half the population of America. In Australia, you only need three. So we've got this vast country out here and we've got great opportunities to do things. What I noticed when I was in Dubbo living, uh, and that's in central New South Wales, it was, it, it knew it, uh, the government looked at, uh, this is going back to the Whitlam years, they looked at funding Baffus Orange as a centre and Albury. They poured a lot of government money into those centres and they, they did okay, but they didn't grow that big. Dubbo grew three times as quick as them. And why? Because the government didn't give them any money. They actually said, oh, well, we're sitting out here in the middle of nowhere. What can we do to be entrepreneurial and to build our town? And that's exactly what happened. Now, they got an incredible um, art centre. They got an incredible performing art centre. They got industries all over the place in, in Dubbo and that, while Orange and Bathurst are more, you know, government-funded, government towns and that. So... So, so to me, it's about how do we look at that type of model and support more of those regional towns and so they can be the hubs for their region. So they, they can have the centre for the hospital. They can have the centre for the uh, for, for the performing arts. and, and, and They could be the foot, local football stadium or whatever. And we need to look at what America did. America, you, you, they shift, they went, what's the old saying, go west, young man. They went out there and they developed their across the, the country. In mm. Australia, it, we're all hanging within, what, 100 kilometres of the coast? Mm. That's where most of the population is. You just run a little thing around the country, around the board, uh, ocean, and there we all are hanging on. People know about the famous map of North Korea, uh, of the Korea Peninsula, where in the south all the lights are on and in the north there's no lights on. I can show you a map of Australia where you've got a little stretch around the coast where all the lights on and in the rest of the country there's no lights. And Hang that on. is. Hang on. There's lots of. One in Alice Spring and Darwin. Uh, but the rest of the places, <laughs> the rest of the places are dark. So we need to, how do we uh, build our centres? And, and it's about encouraging businesses and working with businesses, getting rid of the red tape for things to be happening. And, and, that, and that's, I'm not saying just let it open it up to homeless bowlers to people do what they like. Reduce the process. Even if you're going to have a a process that, that, that has environmental issues and other things, how do you make it quicker to make a decision? You know, sure, surely, you know, I think it's uh, about four to five years. I worked on a gas pipeline once and it took 16 years 
to get that pipeline in place. Uh, and it only took us six months to build it. <laughs> so it, it's so we've got to, how do we make these things happen? A yes and a no quickly so people can work out whether they're going to invest or not. Yeah. Um, I think we're going to have to wrap it up fairly soon, but I might leave just two more questions going forward. Uh, so uh, Tim Stevenson says, even a good policy proposal can be hamstrung, hamstrung by misguided popular opinion or short-term wants. Welfare is less desirable than paid employment, but it seems that governments use welfare to buy votes or silence. So how do we overcome this? I mean, I personally would suggest that education is key to this because particularly when it comes to Indigenous Australians, I don't think, um, particularly in remote communities, there's not enough individuals who are educated enough to understand that they, um, you know, they can have an informed opinion when it comes to going to the coming to voting. Um, and understand what's going on more so. So what do, you, what, what do you say to that question, Warren? I think that person's a genius, very smart, uh, and, uh, and it was a great question. Uh, look, uh, welfare and economic development are all in one. Uh, the, uh, so it's, uh, if you, it's, 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 if you get, if you, people are getting too much, and we're seeing it now in the COVID thing, like my son and I, we're looking for apprentices and we can't get them because people, the kids are telling us, oh, we earn more money by not working. So why would we come and get up at 6 a.m. in the morning or 5 a.m. in the morning to come and work in a job, a dirty job, and, and uh, work hard for 12 hours and then go and for less money than what I'm getting on welfare? So we've got, and this is going to be a big issue when uh, when COVID-19 finishes, we're going to have this huge, massive problem here because welfare's payments are gone through the roof. What we've got, welfare... I, and I've written about this many times, and, and I know Noel Pearson's spoken about it, and I know you have too as well, Jacinda, and Anthony Dillon and all that, how it's become this, this almost this drug-type thing where it just swallows our communities up. And, you know, where you saw communities in the 70s and prior to that, all, you know, like all my uncles and aunties, they all worked. And then when you get into the 80s, the late 70s and 80s, no one works and you sit there and you go welfare has just been this this poison that's really trapped our thing now i'm not saying we get rid of welfare because uh, you know australians are very generous the taxpayers are very generous we always like to help people who's who's struggling and and have hit bad times but it's about getting them back to work and this is what we forgot we said oh we want to help you and to get you back to work now we've got, we're going to help you, you're struggling. And I forgot the work part. We want to get people back to work. And if and we know from statistics and from studies that if, you, if you're out of work for 12 months, it's near impossible to get a person back to work. Mm. And so, we, so we've really got to have a reform agenda for the, for the welfare system. And we do really need, and, and it's got to go hand in hand with the reform of the regulatory framework of, the, uh, of the business sector. Taxation, despite what people think, that some of these mad lefties go out there and say, oh, if you reduce taxes, you have less money for the government. In actual fact, what happens, businesses create more wealth, create more employment, and they pay more taxes and you actually get more money. Mm. Mm. 
Yeah, look, and, you know, going back to the point that I was making in terms of education, I know that there are people in remote communities who are told during election time, who have been told, I know certainly when I was running and, and for other uh, candidates, you know, conservative candidates, that um, the, the other side ha have told people in, in communities that people like myself want to take away, you know, want to take away your payments and they want to take away your royalties and, and that scares people. So it is definitely a form of um, control over Indigenous Australians and that certainly needs to be overcome and education is part of that. Uh, and I also think cultural, um, culturally too, you know, when you're expected to share your, everything that you own with your family, this can cause a huge issue and um, and it's an, often a deterrent to, to um, be employed in a job is if you get paid, why would you want to give all your, your pay to family? Um, yeah, well, that's a problem. Yeah. Mm. And, and that's a twisting of culture. Our culture was that, yes, you, you supported your families and you supported your extended families and everything like that, and they, but they forgot about the other part. They supported you. So everyone had to come, and I call it coming to the fire camp. When they come to the camp and sat around that fire, you had to bring something to that fire. Yes. And if you didn't bring it, they forgot that what the culture did. You got driven out. They mm. said, if you're not going to contribute to, our, to, to the clan, to the mm. community, you've got to go. You, you know? This is the thing that they forgot. This is what my grandfather and all them, they told us. Is, you come here, you've got to contribute. That's but, right. And we will give you, contribute to you and that. They, for, they forgot that. And this mm -hmm. is, what they do now is, is just about I take, I take, I take, instead of saying, no, I, I, I get something from you, you get something from me and how we work that stuff. And that's the part of the culture we forgot. Absolutely. And, and of course, mm -hmm. welfare creates that sort of sense of entitlement as well, if you like. Um, last question now, and this is sort of going to, um, well, I know if, when I answer it, it's going to uh, answer two sorts of questions. So what books have helped both of you reason about Indigenous socioeconomic problems and what would be a good book suggestion for anyone who is interested? And the other question was, because this is the book that I was going to mention, which I've mentioned to you before, Warren, was what do I think, what do you think of Don Weatherburn's analysis in his book, Arresting Incarceration? pathways um, out of Indigenous imprisonment. So that is a recommended a book that I highly recommend having a read of because this it, it's filled with a lot of historical fact, a lot of the recent data on um, reasons for high levels of incarceration, uh, you know, the, the findings of the Royal Commission into Black Deaths in Custody and the re realities around that that you won't hear from the left. Uh, and also um, some great recommendations in moving forward. And and I think uh, probably our uh, Mr. Wyatt should probably have read that as well with regard to his new targets for decreasing incarceration rates, um, which we've both discussed on, on your own webinar, about the fact that uh, there's a failure there to recognise uh, the causes instead of treating the symptoms. But... What would you suggest, Warren? Well, that one is is brilliant. Yeah, that's a great book. Don Weatherburn, I just want to praise Don. I, I've had many briefings from Don, and, and he had this one. I asked him this question. He said, if I only could do one thing, what would I do? And he said, stop reoffending, because reoffending is 70% of crime, and that, that means 70% 70 70 of re, uh, reduction in 
in, in victims, seventy percent of reduction in crime in those communities. And, and you, and if you can do that, and and people can go on and become productive for their community. Brilliant guy. He's got to be the best criminologist in Australia, and I love his work. Yeah, one I, I look at is 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 uh, is why nations fail, and it's and it's a history of of the world over two hundred uh, two thousand years. It, they don't all panic because it's an economic book. Uh, it's by these three eco, uh, economists out of Harvard University and. Uh, Mass, uh, MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, incredible and noble prize winners, these guys, and they in plain English, even I can read it, that's how plain English it is, uh, and, and, that, and it talks about what, it should be called Why Nations Succeed, and it talks about how you create the environment and the structures uh, for private enterprise and commercial activities to succeed. Fantastic. So I think I reckon we can fit in one last question if we keep our answers brief, but I've got one here. Um, I was wondering what both of your political awakening and or journey was like after the George Floyd incident. It has really opened my eyes to how radical the left can be. So, I mean, I guess for me, um, was watching, certainly watching my mother um, she was the chair of the uh, Indigenous Advisory Committee to the former Labor-Henderson government, and she found that her uh, appointment, she felt like her she was just a token in that appointment and that the committee itself was just a token committee uh, for the then Labor government to say, look, we've got our advisors here, but not necessarily take on board the advice that was being provided. So she, um, she then decided, uh, was given the opportunity to run for the country Liberal Party uh, and, and was elected in 2012. And uh, having, um, you know, our family have dealt with a lot of these huge issues. We supported, when, when the uh, intervention first came to the Territory, we supported this action because we thought finally somebody was listening to what was going on on the ground in these remote communities. Um, and while many policies have their um, downsides, there were some upsides to that policy as well. But, um, and it's been about understanding that belonging to the conservative side of politics means that you do have a voice. You can have a conversation, you can have debate, you can have um, respectful discussion and discourse uh, and not expect to be shut down. And you don't have to agree on absolutely every point, but you have the opportunity to be heard. So that's what it was for me. But um, I'll now hand it over to you, Warren, to describe what your political awakening has been. Well, like. mine is, uh, uh, was in, in the mid-'80s. I, I, was, I was, may surprise some people. In fact, you've probably seen my book where I have photos of me being a young radical boy, very handsome at the time. And that, and we was – I come to the realisation in, in, in the Aboriginal movement then because of the Black Power movement the Black, and that was – these people are just about protest. It's, it's about not actually fixing things. It was about being angry and being crazy. And at the same time, I was studying at the South Australian Institute of Technology, SAIT, which is now the University of South Australia. Uh, I, I read about uh, Milton Friedman and that from the Chicago School, and I looked at some of the stuff they were doing, and I looked, and then I went out and started reading about how South Korea 
after the Korean War was a basket case, and then within 10 years it was an economic power. How did that do that in 10 years? And I looked at other countries like Japan and so on and like that, and, and the United States, and, and this was within the 80s. And in about 1989, I just said, I'm actually a liberal Democrat. I'm actually, I'm actually a capitalist. Uh, uh, this stuff that the, these people have been going on about is not about actually fixing anything. It's just about being angry and screaming at people. And so I, I wanted to become a bloke who had outcomes. And, and I saw, I saw uh, running around businesses, running and and uh, and and the demo- the democratic process, and that I've become a, a very huge uh, supporter of it. In fact, this friend of mine outed me at this Aboriginal conferences one day, asked me the question. He said, "What?" He said, "He said, so what economic uh, area do you you support?" And I said, "Well, yeah." And I knew what he was talking about. And these people said, "Yeah." So what is it? And I said, "Well, I'm a capitalist." Mm. I said, "I'm a capitalist, and I'm a great believer in capitalism, which lifted more people out of poverty." And gave opportunities to more people than anything, and and and, and you see it all the time. Uh, this is what scares me about the direction of uh, uh, the indigenous policy at currently. Mm, absolutely, I'm a capitalist and I'm proud. <laughs> Scottish accent, of course, because uh, just a little down. Uh, Yes, that's what we were talking about that earlier. (laughs) Well, look, um, I want to thank you, Warren, for joining us today. It's been a wonderful discussion and, um, of course, we'll be uh, involved in in more um, chats going forward on on your own webinar and I'd love to have you back here again to have another discussion. Uh, And for those of you who have joined us, uh, if If you've enjoyed today's show, please make sure that you like this video, subscribe to the Centre for Independent Studies on YouTube and click the notification bell. Um, Once again... And and I'll do a Greg Gutfield here now. Don't forget to read my book, Warren Mundine in Black and White and Warren Mundine uh, uh, Speaks His Mind, which is unusual, which is about... This is, it, we're looking at it from an Indigenous approach, but it's really about talking about how do you make Australia more prosperous and more competitive in a global world. And, and, and the policies, doesn't matter whether you're black, white, green, pink or purple, it's, it works for all of us. And that's what we're all about, making it work for all of us. So thanks again, Warren. Thank you for having me.